All right. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. And they are called minor, not because they're less important, of course, but simply because they're a little bit shorter. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 7 this evening. Um, I knew your uh, pastor, or I should say I knew of your pastor, mainly because uh, he played softball with us during the summer uh, co-ed league that we would have. And um, he would typically be one of the pitchers, which if you've never played church softball before, that typically means you're, you're pretty good at church softball. And I would normally be playing second base or right field. And if you know church softball at all, that means that I was not very good at church softball. And so uh, I was uh, privileged to get the opportunity to come out and speak. I actually knew uh, your previous pastor, uh, Scott Goodwill, a little bit better. Uh, I was in the wedding for one of his sons, Luke. And uh, when Luke moved to Indianapolis, he said, do you know of a realtor? And I said, I'll do you one better. I know of a church. And uh, so I recruited Luke and had the opportunity to meet um, Pastor Goodwill on a few occasions when he came down and visited with the grandkids. And so it's a great privilege for me to be here and to be opening God's Word with you tonight. I want you to imagine that you get the news that you have at most days to live. Now you feel fine. Uh, You've been in excellent health, and yet you know that within the week you will die. While you may feel fine for the time being, within a few hours the doctor informs you that you're going to start getting violently sick and that this illness will get worse and worse until eventually it claims your life. There's absolutely nothing that can be done about this situation. You feel fine. Very soon you're going to get very sick and you're going to die. Now you may think to yourself, how realistic is such a scenario? Well, it's actually very realistic if you've ever been poisoned with high doses of radiation. You know, radiation is fascinating because while you're being poisoned by radiation, you don't necessarily notice it. Nothing really feels super off. And yet, if you don't get out of there and get out of there quickly, you could get high doses of radiation poisoning. And then once that's done, it's done. There's nothing that can be done about it. What does this have to do with the passage that we've turned to in Hosea this morning? Well, Uh, We're going to be taking a very honest look at Israel, and we're going to be looking at their rebellious heart. And I think that in much the same way as radiation is a silent and slow and deadly killer from which there is no hope, as we look at Israel's rebellion, we're going to see that in many ways the rebellion of Israel was similar. I think that if Israel could have stepped back and gotten God's view of her situation and of where all of this was headed, that she would have reacted with panic much the same way as we would today if somebody were to warn us, hey, there's a radiation leak. Everybody needs to get out of the building. They need to get out of the building now. And yet because Israel is so stuck in her ways, she continues to reject the warning of the prophet. As we come to Hosea 7, we're going to see a lot of very vivid pictures. Uh, The prophets are famous for this. Uh, Israel has kind of become calloused. They've been warned over and over again, and at this point, it's just kind of like water off a duck's back, right? They hear it, and they ignore it. And so often, God will instruct the prophets to use these, these vivid images and these metaphors to try and help them to, to grab, grab a hold of their attention and help them to see what their situation really looks like before a holy God. The message that I've entitled tonight is um, called, A Hot Oven, A Burnt Pancake, A Dumb Bird, and a Broken Bow. 
And so those are going to be the four images that Hosea is going to unpack for the children of Israel to try and give them God's view on what their sin looks like. A hot oven, a burnt pancake, a dumb bird, and a broken bow. And I hope that as we leave here tonight, that one or two or hopefully even all of these images will stick in your mind and will help all of us to remember what rebellion looks like from God's perspective. Tonight we're going to see what Hosea wants his readers and the Holy Spirit wants us to see, and that is that we should beware the silent and destructive power of a rebel heart. Tonight we're going to see that we need to beware the silent and destructive power of a rebel heart. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance that we've had to come and to study your word together. I pray that um, as I unpack what Hosea has for us, that it would be clear Uh, But I pray more than that, Lord, that it would be compelling. Uh, That there might be somebody here today who would begin to see, as as your word is uh, laying bare the secrets of their heart, that they've been behaving a little bit more like Israel than they would like to admit. Father, I pray that all of us would take warning, that all of us would just hate, um, absolutely hate the utter destructiveness of our sin and the deception and the way it can be so easy to fall into things and to fall off. I pray that your, your word would do its work in our hearts tonight, and we will give you the honor and the praise, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. I'm actually going to start down in verse 3. Um, the prophets are famously hard to kind of figure out where one idea begins and another idea ends, and so <coughs> I'm going to begin in verse number 3 and go all the way down through verse 16. Hosea chapter 7 and verse 3 says, They... And this would appear to be, again, one of the things with the prophets is sometimes they're trying to figure out who we're talking about. Um, But the they here appears to be referring to the counselors of the king and the people who are in the royal court. It says, They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, as an oven heated by the baker who ceaseth from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners, for they have made ready their heart like an oven. And while they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all night, and the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen, and there is none among them that calleth unto me. A rebellious heart is like a hot oven. We see in verse 8 the next image that's being used here. Says Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Israel is like a burnt pancake. Next, in verses 11 uh, through 13, we're going to see that Israel is like a dumb bird. It says, Ephraim is like a silly dove, without heart or without sense, without understanding. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And then finally, we're going to see that Israel is like a broken bow. They have cried, or I'm sorry, and they have not cried unto me, verse 14, with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assembled themselves for corn and wine. 
and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow, a broken bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. As we look at the book of Hosea, it's kind of helpful to say, okay, there's, there's a lot that's been going on in this book. Where, where does this leave us? And so if I was to uh, just kind of back up and go through the, the book of Hosea, uh, the first three chapters is a parable of Hosea and his family. If you know anything about the book of Hosea, most people are at least familiar who have studied their Bibles for a while. Uh, many people are familiar with the fact that Hosea was called by God to go and marry a prostitute. Um, now it's possible that she's somebody who hadn't quite acted promiscuously yet, but that she would. And in either case, Hosea knew that the woman that he married was going to be unfaithful to him. God made that very clear. And so eventually she leaves him. She goes out pursuing uh, these adulterous relationships and in the process of that ends up on the slave market. And God instructs Hosea to go and to purchase back his own wife from the slave market as an act of unfailing faithful love And God wants that to be a picture for the children of Israel of the love that he has for them. Well, chapter 4 begins, really, God's case against Israel's sins. He sets up this broad picture, and then in chapters 4 through 14, he just kind of hits the nation over and over and over again with the sins that they've committed, with the judgment that's coming, and with the restoration that will be theirs if, and only if, they are ready to repent. Chapter 4 begins God's case. Chapter 5 warns of God's coming judgment. And then the first few verses of chapter, chapter 6 show a, an example of the kind of repentance God is looking for. The second half of chapter 6 and on into the beginning verses of chapter 7 deal with the reality of the situation, and that is that Israel's heart was far from God, and that Israel's actions proved their heart problem. When we come to chapter 7, we're starting to deal really with a lot of political treachery. Um, What had been something that was uh, a problem for the people was not just a problem with the people, it was a problem in the highest levels of power for Israel. And it's important to remember that all this is being written at a time when the kings are cycling on and off the throne at a pretty rapid rate for Israel. So whenever you study the Old Testament prophets, one thing that's really helpful is to have an understanding of your mind of the history of Israel and the history of Judah. Now, that, that takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of digging. Uh, but if you continue to study that over time, you, you can kind of familiarize yourself. And Hosea, if we were to go back to Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1, we're going to read that the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. And so if you're uh, paying attention to Old Testament chronology, you would realize that this begins during the reign of Jeroboam and it ends after the fall of the northern kingdom. Now what's interesting is that there are several kings after Jeroboam and those kings are not mentioned by Hosea. And it's possible, and I think it's likely, that Hosea doesn't mention them because he views them as essentially being frauds. Because as we're going to see, there's a whole lot of political intrigue going on here. There's assassination after assassination after assassination. And in Jerob- at the end of Jeroboam's reign, Israel's doing really well. They're financially successful. Amos talks about this. Second Kings talks about this. 
And so they're probably feeling pretty confident and pretty comfortable uh, with themselves. And yet, what they don't realize is that they are just a mere 30-some years from absolute destruction. And during that time, that 30-year period, um, they will have six kings. Now, if, if you're an ancient culture, you do not want six kings in 30 years. Okay, you want 40-year reigns, right? You want 30-year reigns. That gives you stability. And you certainly don't want there to be a revolving door of assassinations, and that's exactly what we find in the book of Hosea, or in, in the Old Testament, is that this king comes on the throne, and then he's killed by this king, and then this king comes on the throne, and he's killed by this king. The son of Jeroboam is Zechariah. He reigns for six months, and he's assassinated by one of his generals named Shalom. Now, Shalom reigns for one month, and then he's assassinated. And then after him... His assassinator is Menahem, who reigns for 10 years and dies naturally. By the way, after Jeroboam, he's the last king to die a natural death. Because his son, Pekiah, reigns for two years and is assassinated by his general, Pekah. Pekah reigns for 20 years, and there may be some overlap there. uh, But he reigns for 20 years, and then he's assassinated. And he's assassinated by his general, Hosea, who reigns for nine years and eventually decides that he's not going to pay tribute to Assyria as he had been doing. And that was a really bad decision uh, because he went to try and buy off Egypt and Egypt didn't help him. And so he is conquered. And so it's really amazing because Jeroboam had a good long reign. This is uh, Jeroboam II. He had a good long reign. And you probably, if you were um, coming up during that time, peace and prosperity and security was basically all you had known. And you thought, well, we'll be fine. Everything's okay. And within 30 years, boom, 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 captivity. It was about to happen lightning fast. And Hosea was trying to sound the warning. By the way, Amos is prophesying at this time. Amos is trying to sound the warning. And their warnings go completely ignored. And it's too late. And so as we look at these four illustrations, I want us to see what they mean for the nation of Israel. But I also want to see what they mean for us today. Because again, I think as we study this carefully and pay attention, we're going to realize that there's probably a little bit more Israel in us than we would like to admit. So let's look at these four illustrations briefly tonight. The first illustration that we see is that Israel is like a hot oven. And this means that their rebel heart smolders silently. Israel is like a hot oven. Their rebel heart smolders silently. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 again. It says, They make the king glad with their wickedness, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers. As an oven heated by the baker who ceaseth from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with the scorners, for they have made ready the heart of the king like an oven. Whilst they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen, and there is none among them that calleth unto me. The point of this illustration is the intensity and the longevity of the wrong desires. Their rebel heart smolders silently. The commentator, Derek Kidner, in talking about this uh, text, puts this, uh, describes, this, describes the scene this way. He says, This lurid scene is the culmination of the previous section, which brought us from the country towns to Samaria, the capital. Now we penetrate the palace to find the king and his courtiers not only doing nothing to stem the tide of evil. That was the role of the king. 
The king was supposed to be the chief enforcer of the covenant with the Lord. He says, not only are they doing nothing to stem the tide of evil, but they are reveling in it, titillated by it, relishing the prevailing graft and trickery and letting their lusts take over. Um, As we look at this, you may read some of these verses and say, I'm a little bit confused about what exactly is going on here. And if you are, that's okay. So are Hebrew scholars. Um, this This is kind of a challenging passage, and some of the details are a little bit fuzzy, but the general picture um, is one of a hot oven. And the, and the main point seems to be, again, the intensity of these desires, that they are burning with them, but also the longevity of them. As we go through, I want us to note three things about this illustration. First of all, these sinful desires lead to sinful actions. The, the point here seems to be that the wrong actions that are taking place come from a heart of out-of-control passion and desire. There's a list of sins that we see here. First of all, um, there seems to be this idea of treachery, a greed for power. We read that they are committing adultery. And this, of course, is a greed for uh, pleasure. We see a drunkenness referenced here. Again, another greed for pleasure. We see that there is anger um, and out-of-control uh, passions. As we go through, we see that there's wrong associations. We read that he... Um, Uh, stretched out his hand with scorners. We find that there's murder. Uh, They they strike the king down. And then, um, again, as we look, if we were to go back and look at chapter 6, 7 through uh, chapter 7, verse 2, we just see a lot of -of out-of-control, sinful behaviors. But I think the point that Hosea is trying to make is that all of this is coming from those internal desires, those passions which are out of control. It says here in verse 5, in the day of our king. You may say, what's the day of our king? Well, that's probably a day celebrating the king. Perhaps the ascension day when the king came. And so the picture that's being painted is that it comes to this day of, of celebrating the king. And, and um, rather than as the Psalms uh, give us a picture of presenting the king as the servant of the Lord and as one who is reigning on behalf of the Lord and is pointing the people back to the Lord. This becomes basically a debauched party. And the king thinks that's great, and he's got everybody around him that's telling him that's great, and he's um, uh, participating in lewdness and immorality and drunkenness and all kinds of other things, and yet what he doesn't realize, verse 6, is that while um, he's doing all of this, they are lying in wait And then in verse 7, they are all as a hot oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. That as the king is parting it up with these men, what he doesn't realize is that they're gunning for his position. And much as we see elsewhere in scripture where there's drunken parties that end up leading to destruction. You think of Belshazzar and Daniel. That right when people are sitting back and taking their ease and engaging in this kind of sinful behavior, that it's right then that they're on the verge of destruction. And so we have these sinful desires leading to sinful actions. We also see that these sinful desires are they're smoldering with a quiet deceptiveness. It talks about the fact um, in verse uh, number 6, they have made their heart like an oven whilst they lie in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night, In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. And again, it's a little bit challenging. What exactly is it talking about here? But the idea seems to be that, you know, you can have these coals. I don't know if you've ever seen this or noticed this. Coals can be completely gray and yet be very hot. 
I think uh, many of us are familiar with the sage advice of Smokey the Bear. Uh, If it's too hot to touch, it's too hot to leave. Because you can look at it and say, oh yeah, that looks like it's kind of gone down, the fire's not there. But if you put your hand there, it, it can still be pretty hot. And that, I think that's kind of the idea here, is that um, there's this, this flare-up of passions, of, of sin, of wrong behavior, and then it just kind of smolders under the surface for a while. And then uh, when, the, when the situation is right, it, it breaks forth, and they murder the king, and they set up a new king. And then it kind of is quiet for a while. And again, as we look at the historical situation, this is exactly what's going on in Israel. One king after another king after another king. And all of this is being fueled by out-of-control desires. Question, have you ever thought you beat a sin? And then it flared back up. You know, we have to be humble and we have to recognize that oftentimes we are much frailer than we'd like to think we are. And we need God's help and we always need God's help. And if we see sins that keep coming back up and, and, and popping up from time to time, uh, what that means is that there's desires, and maybe like those coals, they've, they, they've gone gray and you can't really tell. But those wrong passions are still there, and it's only with the help of the Lord that we can root them out. And so as we um, look at this again, we see finally that these sinful desires will ultimately destroy you. These sinful desires lead to sinful actions. They smolder with a quiet deceptiveness, and they will ultimately destroy you. These kings, when they were throwing these great parties, thought everything was fine. They thought everything was great. And then they died. And that's the pattern that we see over and over again in Scripture. This is the pattern that we see in James chapter 1. Desire leads to sin. And sin will always lead to death. Kidner, once again, in commenting on this passage, says, For when passion reigns, there are no limits or loyalties. I think that's a really good way of summing up what's going on here. You've got these kings, they're just on these great parties, and they think they're surrounded by their friends. And really they're surrounded with people who are looking for an opening. And it's a a very sober warning. Sin has a root, and the root of every sin is desire. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. If you are discouraged tonight because you see the same sins showing up again and again in your life, ask yourself this. What is it that I'm desiring that's leading to this wrong behavior? It doesn't matter what struggle it is. If we were to trace it back far enough, eventually we could find some desire for something that's out of place, that's out of control, that's greater than our desire for holiness and are greater than our desire for God. Do you find yourself arguing with your boss? Kids, do you find yourself arguing with your parents? What is it that you want that you aren't getting? Do you struggle perhaps with productivity and not wasting time on social media or Netflix or playing dumb games on your cell phone? You know, nobody forces you to keep scrolling. Nobody makes you play those games. What is it that you want? Do you find yourself... um, Convicted about your lack of sharing Christ? Has your love of comfort and your desire to be respected meant more to you than obeying God's commands? Do you find yourself losing your cool at work or among uh, family? Then you have a desire problem. There's something or someone that you want so badly that you lose it when you don't get it. Sin is bad not just because it is not, just because, not just because it is doing what God has told us not to, 
but because in that moment we are loving and wanting and desiring something more than we are loving and wanting and desiring God. Beware the silent, destructive power of a rebel heart. A rebel heart is like a hot oven. It smolders silently. As we move on, we see in verse 8 that um, a, a rebel or Israel is like a burnt pancake. You say, really? A burnt pancake? Yes, a burnt pancake. And what this means, and we're going to use a big word here, but it was the only word I could think of. A rebel heart destroys imperceptibly. Okay, If you're taking notes and you want a little bit of help, that's I-M-P. E-R-C-E-P-T-I-B-L-Y. Imperceptibly. You can't really notice it. It destroys you, and you don't even realize that it's going on. It says, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. As a kid, I was always fascinated by the question of how do you know when to flip a pancake? Right? Because you can't actually see how much it's cooked. Uh, it was kind of a joke growing up, actually. My, my dad was always in search of the perfect pancake, that, that, that golden brown that's not too dark and it's not too light. And um, my uncle, apparently, who lived next door, was really good at the perfect pancake. And um, according to my father, uh, although I, I don't think he was uh, foolish enough to say this directly, but according to my father, it was, it was even better than, than my mother's pancake. And that... That, at time, caused a little bit of stress uh, in the Hicks home. But how, how do you know? And I, I remember, you know, eventually he was told, oh, well, you have, to, you have to look at the bubbles, right? And when the bubbles pop, and then they don't fill back in, that's how you know that the pancake's ready to be flipped. You're, you're thinking to yourself, Pastor Ben, what in the world? Why are we talking about pancakes? Well, here, here's the point that Hosea is trying to make in this illustration. The point is this. You can burn a pancake, and you don't realize that it's burned until it's too late. It's not until you flip that pancake or cake, as he's talking about here, that you realize, oh man, we cooked it too long. The point here seems to be similar to the illustration of radiation that we used earlier. You don't know it's a problem until it's too late. He said Ephraim has mixed himself with the people. He's, he's hanging out with the world. He's going in among the nations and it's destroying him. He goes on in verse 9 and says, Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Israel's partying it up. They're having a great time. Amos is going to come, and he's going to absolutely go after the rich for the way they're taking care of the poor, and the way they're living lavishly, and the poor are just barely making it. And so the picture that we have of Israel is that Israel's having this great time. They think everything's awesome, and God says, No, 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 no. You are being destroyed right now, and you don't even realize it. He uses another image here. We have kind of a bonus illustration. He says, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. I was um, recently informed by several different people uh, in a very, very kind way, hey, Ben, you're getting more gray hairs. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't realize that. I always kind of knew I had a little bit of gray, but I had two or three people mention that. And now, uh, every time I look in a mirror, I can't help but, you know, kind of do one of these numbers. Like, oh man, they're right, I am. Uh, gray hair is kind of one of those things that happens slowly. You don't, you don't really notice it. You've got a little bit of gray, maybe here and there. And then one day somebody mentions something because they haven't seen you in a couple months or, you know, maybe a year or so. Oh, wow, you're getting more gray hair. Oh, wow, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, oh, I stink, they're right. 
And that's, again, it's another one of these illustrations of this is happening. It's happening so slowly you don't notice it, but it's definitely happening. It says here, um, strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, and he knoweth it not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face. They're proud about this. They, they won't even acknowledge it. And they do not return to their Lord, their God, nor seek him for all of this. They're slowly, slowly being destroyed, and they don't even realize it. And they're not going to turn to God as a result. I want us to note several things about this as we look briefly at this illustration of a burnt pancake. First of all, a rebel heart lives like the world. You know, it begins here and it says, Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. And if you study your Old Testament, you're going to find that Israel's relationship to the nations or the peoples is very similar to the new, in the New Testament to the relationship that the church has to the world. You see, it works like this. In the Old Testament, we see that Israel really liked the other nations. Man, they were impressive. They had, they had governments. They, they had their act together. They were dressed fine. Like, Israel looked and said, wow, we want to be like them. They, they liked the nations. And they wanted to be liked by the nations. They wanted Egypt to think they were something. And they wanted Assyria to think they were something. And they wanted Syria to think that they were impressive. And so Israel liked the nations. They wanted to be liked by the nations. And so the result was that they started acting like the nations. We come to the New Testament and we find that far too often believers like the world. They look out there and they think, man, they've got... What they've got going on, they're impressive, they've got their act together, they're the ones leading, you know, in technology, and they're the ones leading in entertainment, and they're the ones leading politically, and man, they've just, their business, and wow, they, you know, look at the, look at the movies and the clothes, wow, that's awesome. Believers like the world. Believers often want to be liked by the world. And so as a result, believers start, end up looking like the world. And when we do that, what can happen is our spiritual vitality is, is drained from us. Little by little. And it's like Samson. The Spirit of God is going out and we don't even realize that it's happening. People who live for their own desires will eventually find themselves absorbed more and more into the culture of the people who are around them. People who are living for their own desires. And this can be really hard to judge from the outside. Again, this happens imperceptibly, right? Our uh, $9 college word, as my sophomore roommate would have told me. Um... It happens imperceptibly, and it's hard to really nail someone down on this, because as soon as you say, hey, you're worldly, they'll say what? <laughs> whoa, 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 you can't see my heart. Don't judge me. Um, I uh, teach apologetics, and we, we talk about the world, and uh, this is the junior-senior Bible class at the Christian school uh, connected with our church, and if you really want to make friends and influence people, stand in front of a bunch of 16-, 17-, and 18-year-olds and start talking about worldliness. They love it. Um, that, that is tongue-in-cheek. Don't worry. But as, as I do that, one of the things that I try to emphasize with them is I say, guys, the Bible warns us about worldliness. That has to look like something. And then I say, you know, in, in what you'll often hear in, in the culture generally and sometimes in broader evangelical cultures, well, we have to be careful that we don't be obscurantists, right? That we don't just kind of come into our own little corner and we don't want to do anything and and we have to, you know, we have to be in the world as well. And so, you know, we, we have to relate to people. And I would say, you know, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a possible critique. You know, you had the monks who completely pulled themselves away and just went and lived in monasteries. And, um, you know, that, that's not biblical either. But then I'll ask our group this question. I'll say, okay, so we have these two extremes. 
Christians can be so removed from the world that they're not fulfilling the Great Commissions, and Christians can be so involved in the world that they're worldly. As you look at American Christianity as a whole today, and as you look at your own life, which pole do you think you're on? It only gets pretty quiet. And so, a rebel heart will live like the world. Israel wants to be like the world. They're mixing themselves up with the peoples, and it's destroying their spiritual vitality. And it destroys him incrementally. I think one of the saddest uh, phrases in this whole chapter is verse number uh, 9, where it says, Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. I mentioned Samson earlier. Uh, Samson was given three rules. He was a Nazarite. There were three things Nazarites were not supposed to do. Um, Everyone knows, well, they're not supposed to get their hair cut. That's true. They also were not supposed uh, to touch dead things, and they were also not supposed to drink wine. Now let's think about the life of Solomon. Did he, or Samson. Did he touch dead things? Yes, we know that he touched dead things. He touched the carcass of a lion to get the honey out. He was not supposed to do that. That was a violation of his Nazarite vow. Um, we're never told explicitly that Samson drank wine. Knowing the character of Samson, I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. And I think that's why when Delilah asked, where is the source of your strength? Samson set his hair because Samson knows he's got two strikes against him. So he says, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Nazarite. Eventually, um, he breaks down because she keeps nagging him. And he says, well, I'm a Nazarite. I'm not supposed to cut my hair. If my hair's cut, then I'll be just like other men. And so she cuts his hair and he gets up. And scripture specifically tells us that he went out as at other times. God's spirit was gone from him and he knew it not. And the great danger in our churches and the great danger in our own hearts is that this heart of rebellion that slowly, incrementally begins to push out the work of God in our lives can happen to the point where we don't even realize. We don't even realize that we've lost our spiritual vitality. We've lost our power. And so we see that a rebel heart um, destroys imperceptibly. We've seen that a rebel heart smolders silently. It's like, a, it's like a hot oven. It's like a burnt pancake. And then next we're going to see that it's like a dumb bird. Verse number 11 through 13, it says, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart or without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. And when they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heavens. I will chastise them. As their congregation hath heard, woe unto them, for they have fled from me, destruction unto them, because they have transgressed me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Um, Again, this is one of those areas where we read it and we start reading about Egypt and Assyria and we think to ourselves, okay, what does this have to do with my life? Well, let's understand a little bit of what's going on in, again, in the culture of the time, because I think when we understand what this whole deal about Egypt and Assyria is, it can help us to then make practical application to our lives as the Holy Spirit begins to draw some parallel between what's going on with Israel and what's going on with us. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, you have to understand that during uh, this time period, there are some really big power players uh, when it comes to the nations, and then there's kind of everybody else. (laughs) And everybody else is like pawns in a giant chess game. And everybody else is looking out for their best interests. And the big dogs are trying to be the most powerful one. And so this leads to a lot of negotiating and renegotiating and treaties. And you're going to obey me. Okay, yes. Um, A lot of these big dogs kind of acted like the mafia. And that they would come along and they'd say, hey, 
you should probably pay us for protection. <laughs> protection from you or protection from them? Yeah, yeah, right. You should pay us for protection. Um, at this time, you have Egypt in the south, and basically Assyria is to the north, at least as far as, as Israel is concerned. If you think about, you know, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and you've got this little sliver of land, Israel, and um, on the other side of Israel, you've got a desert. A lot of travel, pretty much the connection between uh, Africa and uh, Europe and Asia all went through this tiny little sliver of land called Israel. So this was a really important trade route. This was, unfortunately for them, ground zero for a lot of these battles. And so if you're a big dog, obviously you just want to have the most power and the most influence. If you're one of the little guys, uh, you're trying to play one against the other to find out what the best deal is, to figure out who the most powerful is so that you can be on their side, and if the other one becomes the most powerful, you want to switch. And so what, what Israel and Judah and a lot of these nations ended up doing was they're kind of getting in this, okay, uh, what are we going to do? Are we going to make a treaty with them? Are we going to make a treaty with them? Okay, we made a treaty with them. That's been going well. They're charging a little bit more. We could probably pay off Egypt for less, and Egypt, I think, could take them on, so why don't we try breaking this treaty and going over and getting Egypt for help? This is ultimately what does Israel in. Um, Israel uh, has Hosea, who's basically a puppet king for Assyria, and is paying tribute year by year, and uh, Hosea the king decides, ah, you know what, we're paying a little bit too much. Why don't we go to Egypt instead? And they make a payment to Egypt, and Egypt never shows up. And Assyria comes down and says, all right, you guys are done. We're taking all of you out of the land and removing new people in. You blew it. And so what we see here is, is this, that Israel's actions, while to them it probably seemed like, you know, they're, they're imagining themselves as being these careful, crafty, wise, discerning, okay, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. God looks at it and says, you guys look like a dumb bird. Um, there's lots of creatures that are well-known for their intelligence. Birds are not one of them. I don't know if you've ever had a bird that, you know, you're, you're working on something, and all of a sudden you hear this loud, bang! And a bird has flew, flown into a window, and you think, okay. You know, I understand that. It was very clean glass. You know, it couldn't see it. And then a couple days later, bang! Flies into the same glass. I actually was curious, uh, you know, um, so I, I, I googled dumb bird because I just was curious what would show up. And uh, the first result was a book I found on Amazon called The Field Guide to Dumb Birds of North America. So um, poor birds are not very well known as being intelligent creatures. Israel thinks they're smart. They think they've got it together. They view themselves as these master planners navigating. And God looks at them and says, this is going to blow up in your face. And by the way, this is not what Israel was supposed to do. This made sense for the other nations. The other nations, that, what are they going to do? They're going to try and play this guy against that guy. They're going to do the game. That's not what God said. God said, listen to me, trust me, obey me, and I will take care of you. And you know what Israel said? Israel said, yeah, but I mean, we've got to live in the real world. You know, there are believers today who they will look at God's word, and God will explain, this is how you ought to live, and they'll say, okay, yeah, I get that, but I mean, come on, I've got to live in the real world. God's word will say, the lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And they're like, yeah, but my boss wants me to lie. What am I supposed to do? Nobody at my work is a person of honesty and integrity, and they know I don't like it, but I mean, am I just supposed to lose my job over that? The reality is that we have a world that lives by certain principles. 
And we, we look at God's word, and God's word calls us to something different. God's word calls us to something higher. And sometimes we look at that and we say, yeah, but that's just not going to work. Can you imagine being the king whose national defense plan, when he sits in front of his advisors and his generals, is just to say, all right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're not going to worry about treaties. We're not going to worry about pitting this guy against that guy. Uh, we're just, we're just going to trust God, and um, we're going to work on knowing his word and following him and obeying him. That's our national defense plan. Can you imagine if somebody today said that? Now, Israel's uh, not the same thing as America. There's a difference there. There was a promise that was made to them nationally that's not been made to us. So I don't want to draw a one-to-one correspondence. I think it's appropriate uh, that we have a national defense plan. But at the same time, as we look at this, sometimes we, we emphasize these things so much, and what God is looking for is, are you going to obey me? Sometimes we foolishly look outside of God for help. And we start making plans, and we start making schemes, and we don't ask ourselves the question, okay, does this really line up with what God would have me to do? Because the reality is, we're scared. We're scared that if we do that, that we might uh, just have to make some hard decisions for ourselves, for our families. And the reality is that we can struggle much like Israel. We're almost done here. Let's touch on this last one quickly. We see uh, that Israel... Uh, has a rebel heart like a hot oven. It smolders silently. They have a, a rebel heart like a burnt pancake. It destroys imperceptibly. They have a rebel heart like a dumb bird. It behaves foolishly. And then finally, I want us to see that they have a rebel heart like a broken bow. It refuses true repentance. And this is probably the scariest one of all of them. Verse 14, it says, They have cried unto me with their heart, or they have not cried unto me with their heart, when they howled upon their beds. Was there mourning and weeping in Israel? Yeah, things were starting to get bad. They're beginning to realize, uh uh-oh, the wheels are beginning to spin off. But God said, they're not calling to me. When they howled upon their beds, they assembled themselves for corn and wine. And they just keep rebelling against me. Israel was sad because they were starting to lose out. It keeps going. It says, Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return. And if you take that word return and you study throughout the prophets, you're going to realize that that's basically the Old Testament word for repentance. The prophets come and they call on the people to turn from their sin and to turn to God. And he says to them, They return. They're turning. But they are not returning to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow, like a crooked bow. If you had the best bow shooter in the world, get up there and pull out an arrow and get, you know, 100 yards away and point it at the middle and let it fly, and it's 8 inches to the left. And he gets and he tries and does it again, and it's 8 inches to the left. You're going to decide, you know what, there's something wrong with that bow. It's broken. It's crooked. It doesn't fire straight. God is saying that the hearts of the Israelites are like a crooked bow. Every time they try and repent, what they ultimately end up doing is they just go right for the stuff that they're missing. You see, their problem is that they're not really upset that they've sinned against God. They're upset that they might lose some of the stuff that they've had and that they love. There's a big difference between coming to God and saying, God, I'm sorry, please don't let me lose any of this stuff, and continuing to sin, and coming to God and saying, God, I have sinned against an almighty, holy God. Please forgive me, and whatever the consequences are, I'm ready to take it because I want to be right with you. That was a prayer that David made. And he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. When he humbled himself before the Lord and accepted the punishment that God sent. That's the opposite of Saul. Who came and said, oh, don't take the kingdom away from me. 
who said to Samuel, oh, please honor me in front of the people. Come and worship God with me. I don't, I don't want people to know what, what, what's happened. Their rebel heart is like a broken bow. It's so corrupted and so twisted. It's not that they, um, it's not that they can't repent rightly. It's that they won't repent rightly. Because at the end of the day, they still just want their sin. If I told you that we got a notification here that this building had a radiation leak, you would probably book it outside. I mean, this room would clear out faster than you can imagine. But do we realize the danger of a rebel heart can be just as lethal? Beware of unchecked desire. For when the desire for cheap things grows to the point where you desire them more than God himself, you're in danger. Beware the slow and silent destruction that happens when we take little steps away from obedience to God and start looking more like the world around us than like our Savior. Beware of getting to a point where you can't repent because you won't repent. Because you're broken over what you lost and not over who you've rebelled against. I want to conclude by reading a passage from James. And with this we'll wrap up. James chapter 4 takes a lot of these themes and weaves them together in a, in a powerful passage. And so I just want to read verses 1 through 10. And then we'll be done. It says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together studying your word. Thank you um, for Hosea and for the message that it brings. Pray that you'd help us as we leave this place to take seriously the sin of rebellion, to take seriously all of our sin, and help us to walk out with a spirit of humility, ready to make right anything that needs to be made right. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.